Pesach Shani morning on this day 29 in the counting of the Omer. And uh, a gentleman that I have been uh, telling you about, or at least hinting to you about over the last couple of weeks, is now in our studio. A drop-behind schedule, but nonetheless, we welcome him here. He is the uh, chief proprietor at the Reserve Cut Restaurant in Lower Manhattan, a restaurant that I would bet you've heard of, even if you haven't been there, because it has made quite a splash in the world of the uh, kosher culinary uh, experience. Uh, but I believe that as unbelievable as the restaurant is, and as fancy and incredible and unique and conceptually as it is, uh, what might be most intriguing about Mr. Albert uh, Allaham might be his journey from Damascus to New York City. And it is for that reason that we invited him here this morning on this Wednesday at JM in the AM. Albert Allaham, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. At first, I'm sorry for being late. And I want to thank God and my family and my friends and everyone that helped me out so far in my journey. That got you all the way to this point. The pinnacle yes. of great Jewish radio. Yes. Someone joked with me that if I want to tell somebody who was brought up in the Middle East to be here at 8 o'clock, I have to let them know it's a 5 a.m. appointment. That's what they said. <laughs> then there's a good chance they'll walk in on time. Would, would, would that be consistent with uh, the way things were in the area that you grew up, in the area of the world that you grew up in? or uh... Hopefully not. <laughs> That's what I would hope. Anyway, it's a pleasure to have you here, even if it's a drop late, and uh, welcome you to JM in the AM. So it, it, starting backwards for a moment... When you arrived in the United States, which would be what year? 1999. That is the tail end of the Jewish exodus from Syria to areas like the U.S.? That is it. Very few Jews remain in Syria after the time you leave. I would guess about 75 to 100 people. And that's in it? In late 1999, yes. And in the mid-90s, how many Jewish people are in Syria? We were about 6,000 Jews we were allowed to leave in 1992, between 1992 to 98, 85% left. And allowed, meaning that before that, there was no way the government would allow it, and that after that, it became very difficult. In other words, you knew, or your family knew, because people may not realize how young you are, you and your family knew that there was only a small window of opportunity to get out. Yes. And that's it, just a couple of years couple of years to get out and everyone took took that opportunity and left right away and uh so if there were jews still there today and again today we're talking about literally a handful right but if there were if there was a jewish community you'd be here trying to get messages back to them that that you must leave that there's no future in syria for the jewish if there community. was jews today i don't think they would be there right now. there would be Since no way 2009 2010 right. when the war started right um so, and by the way, this is, as I described it, the, the end of or the, the last part of this whole movement of Syrian Jews to other areas of the world, most notably the United States. But there were other periods of time when large groups of Jews did leave Syria, correct? 70s, 80s, right? There There's, yes, 70s, 80s. A lot of uh, Jews left Syria to uh, United States and Israel. Damascus, everyone left in 1992, mostly 1992. So, and that's where you grew up, right? Yes, I grew up in Damascus, Syria. But and, but you were not gone till seven years later, and we'll discuss why in a moment. So Albert Alaham is here. He is the owner of Reserve Cut Restaurant in New York City, has an incredible story about his journey from Damascus to New York. So now, 
Um, we understand the situation today in Syria is impossible. But what was it like, I don't know, before 92 or during those periods of time when, when it would have been impossible to leave? What was it like to live there? Was there oppression? Was there, did you, did, was it, was it difficult for a it Jew was, to go through a day to day over there? It was difficult to, to practice Judaism during that time. We weren't allowed to wear yarmulkes outside, outside synagogues. There was no learning allowed when you go to a synagogue. Basically, you had to hide when you were learning. So you went to public school? We went to yeshivas, but we were only allowed to pray and learn, you know, regular history and... Uh, right, there was no such thing as Judaic studies, no. or, or at least legally. No. <laughs> if you were doing that, it was in some form of hiding it from the government. Uh, yes. And, and and was it ever different? Like, were certain periods of time better than others, or it was always like that, basically? I think after the war, in the 70s, it got much better during late 80s to 90s but when when it got better i guess that was when the negotiations started happening with israel and here to let the 6000 jews out right and that's when 1992 that's when we got the visas and everyone left right so and and as a kid in syria what is the you know you're reading the papers you're hearing the radio you're watching tv what what is the 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 attitude toward israel has to be negative, right? I mean, there ha- the, the public perception of their neighbor Israel has to be negative, and you're right in the middle of it. You're you're there with uh, with obvious feelings toward Israel, correct? You know, when you hear the news and you read the papers and you see the pictures and the every- where everything is happening, it's where we used to live. And, you know, I just imagined to myself sometime when if I was there, what would have happened now if all 6,000 Jews and my family and everyone was there, how would we get help? And, and the answer I, is? There may not be an answer. There might not be an answer. Right. And what about this whole public perception in Syria? When you're in the midst of a community or a or a country where you know that there's so much hatred toward Israel and therefore so much hatred toward Jews, it must be very difficult to, I don't know, to walk in the streets, to be part of society. Isn't it? Isn't it hard to do to be that way? It's very hard. It was very hard because you, you were always pointed at as the Jew. Right. Here's the Jew. And you had a lucky break in that your family. I don't know if you call it lucky. You could describe it any way you want. But your family had a relationship with government officials, right? And this is this is to us a very a very strange thing because of your family's incredible heritage in the area of slaughtering animals and preparing meat, you actually had a special relationship with government officials. Would that be an accurate way of putting it? We were trying to protect ourselves and family as much as we can. Which you meant, know, how would you do that? Anyhow, any any way that I guess my parents and my father thought that would help us, you know, protect ourselves to, you know, to stick around. And one of the ways of doing that is becoming butcher to the dictator <laughs> or, or butcher to the palace. Like, how, how does the kosher meat angle work its way into this whole picture? <laughs> Regarding uh, being a butcher, we were butchering. We were, the, I would say, the biggest butcher in Syria at the time. Only because you were so skilled and meaning your family. My and, family and, and my parents, we go back four generations in butchering. And that's 
that's what we know how to do, and that's what we did well for business there. Right. So, but am I right? Wasn't there a relationship between your family and the and and the dignitaries of of the town or of the of the state? Yes. And then that helped out, right? That helped us out a lot. Right. And what is it about what you and your family did with meat that was so different than what the other guy next door did? Which, by the way, seems to have lasted into this country as well. It seems that you, know, you have a reputation, at least at least that's what some of the chefs tell me, that you have a reputation, your family has a reputation of simply being able to repair meat differently than other people or than other butchers. What is it? What's the secret? We... We took the process of butchering and cutting meat from early stages where the beef, you know the cow and the beef grows the cattle to scoring it, soaking it, salting it, and butchering the the cattle, and even selling it at retail at a retail store. We know we know the process from day one, right. the from cattle start to finish. from start to finish. And how how the meat is supposed to be prepped, and how it's supposed to be cut, and how it's supposed to be stored, and aged. And nobody knows all of those things, the way your family does. I'm sure there's people out there that know. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> but your expertise or your family's expertise in every one of those areas, every one of make, those areas, makes it very from different. Day one. And that's how, how to feed, how to slaughter, how to skin, how to kosher, how to soak the cattle, right. everything. Right. Uh, for your family, I would guess that the 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 pressure of finally leaving Damascus, right, which which happened in the mid nineties, um, m- must have been somewhat of a traumatic experience, right? There, there, from the way you're describing it, or, or at least the way I'm prodding you to describe it, uh, you're you're you know you've got connections there. Uh, sounds like there's a good business going on there, right, in Damascus at that time. Yes. And now it's time to move. So how do your parents make this transition to uh, the New York area? What do they do? Well, in, in 1999, like I said, there was around 75 people. My family is, uh, were five boys and one girl. And I don't think we could have stayed any longer. And we thank God that we didn't stay longer right. due to the fact of the situation that's happening now. But we had to go, and I moved here in 1999. Then I stayed here about two or three years with my brother until 2002. That's when all my family moved out. They were literally the last ones. Last ones. And how did your parents spend those couple of years actually preparing, preparing to transition to, to the U.S.? Was Pre- That must have been very difficult. Yes, my mom had to go back and forth just to prepare us. To, you know, we had to start from scratch, rent the house here, prepare, the, prepare us to go to school, to go to yeshivas, be close to our family, be close to our cousins that we haven't seen in ten years. All right. And you probably think that your adjustment uh, is still happening, while we look at you and say knows the language pretty well obviously has adjusted pretty well to what's happening in New York with the business you're running, right? So we look at you and say, wow, what a New York success story. You're probably thinking you still have a lot more adjusting to do, right? I'm still thinking on how to learn and how to know and how to figure out New York. 
I find that hard to believe. Albert Alahabi, you're sitting uh, you're sitting on Wall Street with one of the most exclusive businesses in the kosher community. I have a feeling you figured it out at this point. Albert Alahab is here. He's the owner of Reserve Cut in New York City, which is officially at what number on Broad Street? Forty Broad. Forty Broad. But you have to do something unusual when it comes to restaurants. It's not like the majority of restaurants where it's on street level. You actually have to use an elevator to get there, right? Yes, it's on the second floor of the Satai uh, building. Right, a well-known building. Unusual, wouldn't you say, when they built the restaurant? Wouldn't you say that that was a bit unusual, that it's not that street level? And that, I mean, I would assume a minority of restaurants in New York require elevator use. Am I right? Yes. Very, very, very rare, right? <laughs> like some of your steaks. <laughs> very rare. Anyway, so... At some point, you and your family have to take this transition and this adjustment and literally open up a meat business in New York. This is way before the restaurant, right? Open up a meat business in New York. When does that happen? That happened in 1998. Already they opened at that point, before before your parents were already here? No, my parents, my brother was here. One of my brothers right. was there in 1998. And he, he opened it up. How, he was learning how to butcher. And where was that location? Where was Ninth, it? On Kings Highway in East End. Which is still there or not? Which, which is still there. But that's that that does not deal with uh, the retail industry or it does? That's that's retail. That is the retail industry. And so we he, have, I opened in 2008 the Prime Cut Butcher in Brooklyn. And that's the one on Avenue U? Yes. And what has the reception been so far to that uh, to that business? Because I didn't, well, th- I didn't think there's much difference when it comes to, you know, how one cuts meat or how meat tastes, you know, once it's prepared by different butchers. You know, I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a connoisseur in this area, but I never thought there was much different. But in, in your case, it seems like people think so. The, the reaction I was getting when I opened, how do you cut the meat so good? You know, how, how did you, how is it that the display that you made, where did you learn how to do this? And everyone used, you know, come in and be amazed of how, how everything was displayed and how we did it. So what's the secret? Or you don't want to reveal your secret on the air? <laughs> are there a lot of secrets or it's just There's hard? a lot of secrets. There are a lot turn. of secrets to making a good piece of meat. Yes. To preparing that piece of meat so when people take it home and do it properly. And you do offer them recipes, right? You do offer them methods. We do offer recipes, yes. And they, when they put that in their oven and it comes out, it's going to be something extra special. We hope. Yeah, well, you hope. I think <laughs> I think you've proven that. And you've done a couple of unusual things in terms of the restaurant itself because you have a uh, – you literally have an eye uh, – uh, how do I put this? A window open to the world so everyone can see how your chefs operate. When you walk into your restaurant and you're sitting there in, in the main room of the restaurant, everyone can actually see through the uh, transparent glass the kitchen operation. I must tell you. Most chefs and most uh, restaurateurs do not want people looking inside the kitchen at a restaurant. In your case, it's just the opposite. Why? I thought it would be interesting to see when you're sitting in an open kitchen view and looking at your steak being cooked and prepared, even looking at how it's being plated and seeing your steak coming out to your table would be a nice, a nice, you know, pre-meal. 
A nice appetizer. Well, like I said, most, most people might <laughs> think just the opposite. That once they see how, how everything's prepared, they wouldn't want to eat. In your case, you're saying when you see how it's prepared, you're certainly going to want to eat. 100%. Are your chefs, um, and I, and you've had one chef since it opened, right? I have one chef. Is your chef intimidated by that whole situation? It must be something he's not used to, I would guess, from other places where he's worked. He's not used to it, but he feels comfortable with it, and uh, they're used to it. And we do we do actually the same thing even when we're uh, even if we're not open kitchen. Meaning, you know where everything. No, has. I understand. I understand that obviously, but still, I know when people are watching me do a show, it's still more intimidating. Even though I basically do the same thing I do when there's nobody around, you know what I'm saying? Still, it, it can be an intimidating experience. I think they got used to it after being, you know, a couple of months. So it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Why have so many people come in to try Reserve Cut? Lunch, dinner, uh, Mother's Day, I assume you were packed, right? Can I yeah. assume you were packed? A <laughs> night like tonight, you'll be packed till 11 o'clock at night, correct? Sure. There have been so many failures of fancy restaurants in Manhattan, the kosher restaurants, and so many failures of kosher restaurants downtown. Why is it? How many months are you open now? Opened October 2nd. So basically around Sukkot. Why is it that since Sukkot you have become such a sensation when so many kosher restaurants, especially the ones that try to be very high-end, you know, watch watch themselves completely deteriorate in the first few months? Since we opened, I realized we've been getting a lot of repeating customers. That's the key, huh? And that's what made me feel good. And that's what, you know, made me relax and feel comfortable about it. People have been, have not experienced, I guess, the, the cuts of meat in kosher, the, the prime meat that's supposed to be served. No matter what we think has been good till this point, you're simply saying there's stuff we just haven't tried yet. That's, that's, that's what I want to show and prove that there has, there is stuff that people need to try. And there is kosher meat. And when you want to take someone out, you want to be proud to take him to a kosher restaurant and show him what we have. And so far, that formula has been very successful. Yes. 40 Broad Street, second floor, reserve cut. I have to spend the last few minutes, and I apologize, but we we got off to a late start. But I got to spend the last few minutes just asking you about this adjustment to the US you're you're not even 30 years old although i don't know if you wanted that to be known publicly but you're a young guy who is and, and, and to be in this area of new york city with this type of restaurant with with a, an operation that must be in the millions of dollars frankly has got to be you know unprecedented for somebody your age but all that having been said what was the adjustment like for you to the united states Jewish community, when you did not know English well uh, when you first got here, and when you were, as a teenager, sometimes on your own, because as you said, your parents very often were flying back and forth to Syria to close things up over there and, and make sure you had a secure situation over here. Uh, were, were your classmates friendly? Were people helpful in terms of the adjustment? Were neighbors and cousins and others who had been here before you know, a- extremely helpful to you in this whole process? How would you describe that period of time in your life? Well, I came for a visit in uh, 1999, and I came with my mom, and I decided to stay on my own. When I saw that it was difficult, not com- that you couldn't communicate with your friends, with your cousin, and you couldn't even talk to them, or 
even just simple things like play basketball with them. I decided to go to Magan David Yeshiva High School to start learning. I learned summer and winter, studied English and Hebrew, didn't speak a word of English, didn't speak a word of Hebrew. You literally did not speak a word of English in 1999? Not a word. Had studied both at the same time, went through four years of high school with learning and learning 18 hours a day and studying until I finished high school in 2004, decided to start working with my father in the butcher shop on King's Highway and just wanted to learn the business. What made me feel good and inspiring me, see everyone, seeing all the Jews around me, which I, I, I didn't experience. A big community. A big community around me where you see everyone is proud to wear a yarmulke, where you see everyone is proud to learn and practice Judaism. That's, that's what I guess inspired me to keep doing things. And then the love for butchering is, is the second part. <laughs> so the Jewish community was great and the meat business was, the meat business. was good to you as well. Uh, I think it's an unbelievable story. People can meet you every day in the restaurant. Can they find you there? Yes, I'm at the restaurant. You're always day. there. Always there. So lunch, dinner, if someone walks in today, they can meet one of the heroes of the Jewish world as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Pretty amazing. Uh, and how do people get information? What's the best phone number, the best website? How do people get information about what you're doing at 40 Broad Street? Reservecut.com is our website. Best way to get information to is online or at 212-747-0300. That's the phone number of the restaurant. Simple as that. And you have an amazing wine selection as well, right? No kosher wines from Syria, right? You never, no. You never came across any kosher. No. But you have some clothes because you have some from the Golan Heights, right? <laughs> yes. So you have some that are – if someone does ask for a Syrian red wine, you could say this is just from a few miles a few, away, right? Yes. <laughs> Maybe even closer than that. Who knows? <laughs> Albert Allaham is the uh, owner of Reserve Cud, which has made quite a splash in the kosher world, to say the least. In New York City, what's even greater or more inspiring or more interesting when you meet him is his incredible story of being a part of what was essentially, and I learned this as I spoke to him in the restaurant, uh, what was essentially the last uh, movement of Syrian Jews to the United States. Today, the estimate would be, what, one Jew or one family? Who's left there in Syria today? Anybody? One or two people. And that's it. That's it. That's the extent of it. Uh, Albert, a pleasure having you here this morning. I hope we get to meet again. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. Albert Allaham, uh, check him out at 40 uh, Broad Street in New York City. And when you go over to him, discuss this incredible history. Uh, I think the it's a microcosm of what has uh, uh, become such an, an important and impactful community within our community. And that's the uh, a community that comes from the uh, Syrian Jewish community from Damascus and other areas of Syria. Wednesday mornings, we start to wrap things up on a Pesach Shani morning at JM in the AM. Reminder, the president of Yeshiva University, Richard Joel, tomorrow in the 8 o'clock hour with us right here at JM in the AM. Uh-huh.